jewelry in my chain set. That's the life I want to live. Show me the money. Show me the money. Welcome to the Pay Matters Podcast, a podcast about the art and science of employee compensation. Each week, we deliver the best information and analysis about compensation trends. Now, here's your host, David Weaver. Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Pay Matters Podcast. I'm your host, David Weaver, president of the Compensation and HR Group and author of the book, Pay Matters. I'd like to welcome our guest, David Buckmaster, director of compensation at Nike and author of the book, Fair Pay. David, it's so nice to have you here. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Uh, like you said, I'm the uh one of the comp directors at Nike. Uh, My background prior to that is with Yum Brands, which is KFC, Pizza, and Taco Bell, where I was doing international comp. And then before that, I was at Starbucks in Seattle. Uh, And then I guess prior to that, I was in the international development space doing broader HR and comp work there. Uh, So yeah, my new book is called Fair Pay, How to Get a Raise, Close the Wage Gap, and Build Stronger Businesses. It came out June 29th from Harper Business. Excellent. And I did get a chance to read your book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, It was very thought-provoking. So congratulations. Thank you. So I have some questions for you. Of course, they're all compensation-related, and some of them relate back to your book. But my my first question is around, um, can you let us know what compensation trends you're seeing so far this year? Sure. And before we get into that, let me just say, I know we've kind of ticked off the companies that I've been through. So, and let me uh, give my kind of broad disclaimer here. You know, I'm, I'm here representing the book and my own points of view. Anybody who does comp knows that, uh, you know, we can be a pretty opinionated bunch, right? But, you know, I'm here just giving my own opinions, not on behalf of any company. So, all disclaimers aside, I, um, you know, I, I chose like five things that I think are really important for, for comp pros to talk about. And I'm happy to be here because we can geek out on like very specific comp stuff. So a lot of the other uh, media or podcasts that I've done for this book so far, it's, it's much broader, but I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to get into the weeds uh, with everybody on this pod. Uh, so I, I just think broadly, you know, when we are, you know, the last year for most of us, we have just been trying to keep our heads above water, right? Like COVID has Mm -hmm. expanded our roles in ways that we've really never had to think about our jobs before, especially if you're in a combined total rewards job where you've got benefits and comp. Uh, We're having to move really quickly, you know, without any benchmarks or history on, you know, how do you set up like vaccination programs or, uh, (laughs) you know, what do you do for uh, sick leave policies? Like there's a lot of things out there that some of us have just never had to think about in some of these ways. But I think, what this means in, in you know in the post covid era in the same ways that companies are having to make huge transformations on digital supply chain uh whatever it may be like we are also going to have to go through you know 10 years of progress and innovation in the next two i think so there this is going to be a very very serious um heavy time for comp pros and so the areas that i think that i'm most interested in seeing how they develop um one of them, I'm, I'm really curious just to see like what the merger era in our field results in, you know, and, you know, I think uh, what we're seeing is some of the traditional surveys uh, start to merge into less and less companies. We're seeing the same thing on the technology side and some of the self-reported pay sites. And I will say just uh, as a practitioner, like the part of me is a little bit disappointed uh, that we're losing some of that choice. But I, I think, you know, I, I want to be cautiously optimistic. You know, I, I hope these things result in 
uh, you know, better, um, better insights for us. Uh, so I'll give my classic comp answer there just to say it depends. But the thing that I get worried about is like, are the technologists leading the way or the comp people leading the way? And, and what I mean by that is, um, is there, I think there's this thread out there that worries me a bit in the sense that uh, I think people are saying, well, or they're starting to lean into the idea that, you know, we can optimize to find the exact right amount of pay at the right time for the right people, and that the employees will all buy into that system. And I just like, I fundamentally think we're overestimating our ability to do that. Like we, you know, we've been at, for example, pay for performance for decades, and we barely get that right. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a, pre- a prerequisite for any of this other stuff to work. So I, I'm almost wondering if we don't go the other way a little bit because of some of the uh, things we're going to need to do around uh, pay equity, around wage gaps, around transparency. I wonder if the smartest companies aren't going to step back and try and harmonize their programs a bit, try and take out a lot of the really over-engineered stuff. Um, and just like focus on uh, fairness in the sense of do employees get it? Do they understand what we're trying to do? Do they buy into our system? And can we explain it in a way that's simple enough for them to uh, feel like they've had a say um, in the way their comp is set and that they uh, you know, can see that as an enabler for their career? So I, I wrote in the book something along these lines. And I, and I also said that I think that's probably going to be the most controversial section of the book for certain readers mm-hmm. uh, who are way down that other path. Um, so I, I'm curious to see how that develops. Uh, the other thing that I think people aren't necessarily talking about our cash incentives. And I might kind of step into the muddy waters here and just say like, I wonder if these don't just go away eventually um, in favor of more base pay or uh, stock or some sort of fandom stock program or something. I, I think we broadly overplay our hand on whether we really are able to drive behavior with these programs or not. Like I, I think about this in terms of, think about it like a normal distribution curve where like the left tail is you know, the programs that are like actively harmful around driving the wrong behaviors. You can think mm-hmm. about, you know, some of the stuff with Wells Fargo or, uh, you know, Purdue Pharmaceuticals or whatever, where, you know, programs are designed in such a way that, you know, created pretty harmful, um, uh, you know, legal consequences for those companies. Then there's the, the the right side of the tail, which is pretty small, where you know for sure that this compensation incentive really change behaviors in a way that's most meaningful. Mm-hmm. But then I think there's this broad spectrum in the middle, like the majority of the curve where we just really don't know, you know, like, is it the plan that's driving it? Or is it you've got a better product assortment, you know, maybe it's luck, honestly, maybe you've got a better strategy, product market fit, like, can you really drive those things down further into the organization? And one of the couple of the signals that I'm seeing, like uh, Netflix, Amazon, a couple of companies that have just dumped these uh, cash plans altogether. And like, I don't think any of us would say that those two companies aren't committed to growth or that they haven't been wildly successful. And so being able to do that without uh, some of these cash plans, I think would be really interesting. Plus, as practitioners, we know, uh, you know, th- these programs are such administrative headaches. Like, I just wonder, are we going to view this as being worth, is the, is the juice worth the squeeze in the future? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. It's interesting. You know, I, I just quickly, I had two... CHROs at technology companies that came to me like in May after they had paid out their bonus in April and they had like 30% of their workforce give their resignation the week after the bonus payments went out. And, And they said they couldn't stand it anymore. They just couldn't stand they people were looking they were anticipating they were going to take their bonus payment and move on and they just wanted a way to just take that 
that that cash incentive and drive it back into the base, which is exactly what they both did. And now I know intuitively in two to three years, they're going to be right back with some kind of cash incentive plan because, you know, the candidates are going to be asking for that. So I can totally relate with why, you know, you might stop doing that, but I think everything goes in cycles. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's always what's old is new again in our yes. world for sure. And, you know, it, it's if you have a very loud manager saying the only way we can get people to work hard is if we give them a bit more money. Like, I think I think we underestimate, you know, really all pay is at risk. If you're not doing a good job, like you're not going to be employed anymore, uh, you know, and that's so your entire pay is at risk. And right. we just overestimate our ability to really be able to track this stuff. And I don't know if your experience is similar to mine, where like the worst, most brutish fights that you see in your organization is about like who gets credit for what in the incentive plan. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I mean, is that, I mean, honestly, is it really worth it? Maybe, maybe, I don't know, but maybe we'll go through a period <laughs> where that's uh, becoming less, uh, less important. And, and I think if we're honest, what we all know is these plans sometimes are just a, a, a nice way to offload some portion of your wage base when you've had a bad year. And so I think, you know, or they're for tax reasons for executives or whatever, right? Like that, that may be, I mean, those may be perfectly valid reasons to have them, but they're certainly not necessarily driving behaviors in the way that we all assume they are, or we, you know, we are taught that they might be. Right. Right. And, and truthfully, truthfully, some of those plans are just entitlement plans, right? I mean, people, you know, they're expecting it, they get it, they get the same target bonus percentage every year and they get used to it. And then it, it just doesn't have that incentive impact. Yeah. So I think some of the other uh, trends, you know, transparency, clearly it's going to be a big one. Um, for those of us who are not ready for it, uh, we need to get ready for it very quickly. Uh, you know, just some of the legislation coming through, not just in the U.S., but, you know, everywhere else. Like people are people are so frustrated with the way we operate in the black box of comp that, I mean, you know, we've all seen companies, are, uh, employees are creating their own internal salary surveys on uh, and just posting you know, like if you think that's not coming for your company at some point, like, sorry, your, your head is buried in the sand somewhere. So it'd be best if you went ahead and got to try to get ahead of this or develop some sort of strategy around it. Now, there's a whole spectrum of what does transparent mean and what's the best thing for the right organization. And we can certainly get into all of that. Mm-hmm. But like, this is not going away, right? We're going to have to figure this out. I think another thing is we are going to end up moving beyond pay equity and being asked uh, questions about the pay gap. So you know, on a podcast like this, we're just practitioners. I don't think I need to spend a ton of time explaining the differences between the two. Um, but, uh, you know, pay equity is just a uh, function of is the company leaning into its own policies and uh, around, you know, are we paying equivalently for you know the same level, the same place, that kind of thing. Pay mm-hmm. gap is clearly more about things that are much further upstream around, uh, you know, who's sitting in what chair, what is our sourcing and uh, recruitment policies look like, all of that kind of stuff. But I think we're going to be asked to jump into that much harder bucket. So if for those of you who work in global companies, you know, in a, a country like the UK, you have to report on raw wage gap, right? So like we are going to be tasked with how do we figure out around closing that particular number. And, you know, comp, th- this is where I think you just have to take a much more integrated look at all of your HR practices, like this just fundamentally cannot be outsourced to the comp team because the comp team is last in line in this. Like the way I say it in the book is like the when it comes to the raw pay gap, like uh, companies are not the canary in the coal mine, mm-hmm. you know, saying, hey, trouble's ahead. We're the black lung disease saying uh, we have uh, everything is broken ahead of us, you know? So it's like after years of bad practice, this is what you get, you know? So uh, this is going to require a, a full court press from all of HR 
uh, from the entire company to keep it on the agenda uh, to make sure that we are, um, you know, attracting and recruiting uh, and retaining and motivating the, the right people all the way through the organization. So uh, that's going to be a tough one for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, in the area where I probably get most animated is just around uh, living wages. Um, and honestly, like uh, as practitioners, like we've, we've, we have this coming to us, right? Like, uh, you know, I start the book off and uh, this, when I first saw five for 15 uh, take off, which is a couple of years after it started, mm-hmm. uh, I was working at Starbucks, working on retail pay at that time. And, you know, I, I left the office one of the, one day and to see this massive protest outside, I'm like, well, what is this? And then I see, well, $15 an hour and, you know, whatever year that was 2014 or something, the, uh, the, the comp person to me says $15, you know, that's not on our, that, that, that's nowhere near our surveys. And even now, like I won't, I won't, I won't name the, uh, the survey provider, but I was on a call this week and these are, you know, there were, you know, dozens and dozens of, uh, you know, uh, representatives of comp teams of very sophisticated operations. Uh, and the, the results were like, in the single digits of companies that intend to get a $15 an hour or more this year. So we're talking like, you know, up to a decade later and like whatever we're doing, is just not resonating. And so I go into great depth in the book around why that is and why, you know, we have to make some pretty fundamental shifts around, you know, just because it's market relevant does not mean that it's people relevant. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to have to do some uh, really seriously hard thinking around that. So, um, yeah, so those those are the trends. That's a lot there, but uh <laughs> well, I'm going to add one onto the list. Now, because the compensation people are talking about this and I talk about this on almost every podcast because people have an opinion. But but the whole geographic pay. Talk a little bit about what's going on with, you know, remote workers who are, you know, have moved from the headquarters city to a lower cost of labor area and companies are talking about cutting pay. Some talk, companies are talking about, you know, doing geographic differentials where in areas where people now work, which is really where they live. What's, what's your thought on that? Yeah, this is kind of a no-win argument, isn't it? You know? <laughs> Which is why I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think so much of this depends on uh, where are you starting from as an organization. So if I think, okay, if I'm a big tech company based in San Francisco and I've built into my business model that I have to pay San Francisco wages or New York wages or Seattle wages, like, you know, really high cost of labor type markets. And now what I'm seeing is, well, people actually want to go work from, you know, a ranch in Montana or to go be with their family in Cincinnati or whatever. Like, it doesn't really cost me anything extra or matter to me that, you know, I can theoretically just keep that same national or San Francisco based rate everywhere. You could do that. And I think employees would probably appreciate it unless you're that uh, person who raises their hand from San Francisco and says, well, you know, person X has, you know, 40% less cost of living, how come they get paid? Like, again, th- this is where you lose your heads, you, uh, whatever, you just lose both ways, right? It- it's not a, it's not a really great practice. Now, the other side of that is, like, let's say you're starting in Nashville, or Memphis or something, you know, some some national median type city. And mm-hmm. now you've got to go set up a, an office in New York or San Francisco or Seattle. Uh, now you've got much harder questions around, okay, so does the differential still matter? And do I can I only find talent in one of these cities? And if so, 
you know, I'm going to ha- be expected to continue some sort of differential. But if you only need five people in those cities, but you know, you've got 100 in Nashville, that's going to add an enormous amount of wage base to normalize all of them, right? So um, a lot of a lot of especially smaller companies aren't going to be able to navigate it that way. So they I think they will still maintain some sense of geographic differentials. I think the hardest part of this is companies are going to have to figure out, okay, did we did we ask this person to move to a location or have they raised their hand to move to a location? Now, if they ask to move uh, from, uh, or, or if you told them to move from Nashville or New York, like I think the expectation is, okay, they're, they're going to be on that higher geographic differential now, if that's your policy. Um, if they've raised their hand, you might not be so inclined to do it to say, well, you know, why, why should I pay for this? You know, some companies may choose to do that for really, you know, high end talent and have consistent policies around that if they, if they have the budget to do it. But the, uh, you know, the, that that's going to be very hard to keep track of in large companies. Uh, so I, I think what you might see is companies choose a, a random differential based on their talent market to say, well, anybody who's remote, we're just going to pay, you know, a hundred. We're going to add a ten percent differential to it, or we're going to pay P sixty instead of P fifty or whatever. And then they're going to have to deal with the consequences, good and bad, depending on where they move. So uh, again, th- like the best thing companies can do is to pick a lane and be consistent with it because they're going to get in trouble if they start um, differentiating based on the person level and they're going to get into all sorts of, well, this person got this and that person got that. And then you've got a bunch of uh, angry emails and pay equity issues uh, to go with it. Right. And I think for the companies, it's, it's hard because it's an employee market right now. So the employees are really calling the shots and, you know, they're even saying to, you know, their companies, Hey, well, I'm not moving back to the office and, you know, fire me if you have to, but I'll find a new job. So we, you know, it's, it's becoming this whole geographic pay thing has become an employer relations issue also. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Listeners, this episode is sponsored by the compensation and HR group, providing compensation consulting for all of your organization's needs. CHRG provides compensation benchmarking, salary range development, bonus plan design, executive compensation program review, and they have the only employer-reported salary survey that is free with participation. For more information, go to chrg.compensationhr.com. Now back to the show. Another question, what are what are some of the hot jobs in the market where the demand is higher than the supply? What are you seeing? Well, you know, I think there's the stuff that was true pre-COVID, you know, e-commerce is super hot, obviously, uh, especially that's just going to accelerate now as a lot of companies are going more direct to consumer um, or they otherwise are you know, um, just having to make those shifts for margin reasons or whatever it may be. Uh, I think privacy jobs have been pretty hot for a while, um, whether it's in Europe with GDPR or some of the standards, um, you know, with an administration that uh, probably cares more about this stuff than, than previous administrations without getting too political. Uh, uh, DE&I jobs, absolutely. You know, every company is, uh, you know, reshaping their policies around this. And, and you know, I, I hope they are very serious about that. So there's a lot of really talented people in that space who can pick and choose where they want to work now. And there's a lot more opportunities there. Maybe one of the unique ones, workspace design. I'm not sure I'm seeing this necessarily in surveys, but I'm just anticipating, uh, you know, if uh, your entire um, campus has to be sh- like if you're a company that's going to go, you know, not fully remote, but not five days a week either. Like you might be one to three days a week, which I think is kind of the market norm. 
Um, like a lot of them are also shifting the way they work to how do you make it more flexible uh, and, you know, adaptive to the different types of work experiences you might have throughout the day. Uh, so people who can be really thoughtful and smart in that um, regard, I think, are going to help companies transition a lot better back to the office post-COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, I think <laughs> the the big one is low-wage work, right? Like, uh, I don't know what, what your town looks like. I'm, I'm in Portland, Oregon now, but I, you know, consistently hear these stories around, uh, you know, hiring bonuses and, you know, we can't keep stores open, uh, you know, whatever it may be. And, you know, when I say low wage work, I'm, I'm very intentionally, I'm not saying low skilled work. I think the idea of the skills gap, and I might be controversial here, is just a bit of a made up cop out stuff uh, just to justify why these people aren't being paid very much. Um, but broadly, like I get really, really animated on this particular topic and anybody who's works with me, uh, knows to just let me rant when I, when I really get spun <laughs> up on this. <laughs> but uh, just because the companies I've worked for, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly on mm-hmm. this stuff and how hard it is to keep these workers on the agenda. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think, unfortunately, like, um, nationally, we've just gone way too quickly from saying, you know, these workers are essential or they're heroes all the way down to like, well, these workers are freeloaders and they just need to get back to work and let's cut their unemployment benefits. You know, like, uh, I think there's some, there's some ethical problem that, we, that we've got here. And I think compensation pros have a, have the ability to influence that conversation in ways they've never had before. So like, I might be the only kind of person to say this, but I'm loving this moment, honestly. Like, uh, I think you mentioned this already in the sense that, you know, employees have more power than they've ever had. Uh, and I've never seen something like quite like this in my career where, uh, you know, we are having to put much more emphasis on that employment experience at the lower part of the organization. Um, I think companies are going to come out of this so much stronger uh, with much better employment experiences. And that overall is going to um, uh, kind of separate the good employers and the bad. And I'm not sure the bad employers who haven't taken this seriously, I'm not sure that they survive. And uh, so, I, you know, I would consider this as call to action. If you are, if you work on low wage comp, like you need to make sure this stays in your agenda because it's, it, if it isn't already a huge problem, it's, it's coming for you. Right. Well, I have never had so many requests to do market analysis for the entry level jobs. It's, it's unbelievable. The phone rings every day about, I can't, recruit entry-level workers. I can't retain entry-level folks. And, and you know, we end up doing the analysis. And what happens is that entry-level job has to move up, which impacts the intermediate-level job, which impacts the senior-level job at the low end. And they have to go through a whole compensation analysis to get that really uh, corrected. And it's and it's painful for the companies because they're not used to doing that. They never even paid attention to those roles. And now they're having to pay attention. So I agree with you. I mean, it, you know, for me, um, I, I'm loving this because we're able to make some course corrections that we could never make before. Yeah. And, and I think for this particular employment sector, like you almost just have to set up a very formulaic, if we do X, then Y and Z follow for that uh, very specific um, progression reason that you're you're talking about, right? Because these things all typically move together. Uh, so, like you d- you need to think about it not just from the market lens, from the programmatic lens to say how can we scale something that moves very very quickly. And you know that, that's where you mentioned earlier, like some of the old ideas come back. You know, we might see a, a resurgence in step programs and uh, you know more fixed uh, interval type programs versus trying to manage. Uh, you know, pay you know, through pay ranges or whatever at, at the low wage, which just isn't really going to work. The other thing that I think is happening there is, you know, I, I think companies are starting to make shifts. They're, I think, 
they're actively ignoring their market data in this space because they have to. They're not getting it, uh, um, you know, as frequently as they as they could, and they're not seeing it as being relevant. You know, mm-hmm. like if you say, well, the market weight, like you know, I've got my latest survey and the the rate for you know, Dallas or whatever is 13 bucks an hour, but I can't hire anybody for 16. You're just going to, you need to kind of make a, a bold above market, almost PR based move and say, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing nationally. And so you've seen a lot of companies that even their CEOs have really stepped up in big ways to come out with big statements to say, well, we understand this is what everybody's doing, but here's what we're going to do for very specific reasons. Right. And, and I think that stuff is really interesting for the survey vendors who might be listening. Uh, if, <laughs> whichever one of you, w- yeah, w- whichever one of you uh, puts together some uh, level of, you know, here's what market rates look like, but here's what living wage looks like. Um, or some version of that, some methodology, I promise you, you're going to have a lot of customers on your hands because like that data is getting increasingly important and incredibly hard to find and in ways that, you know, would kind of uphold to our standards. It's kind mm-hmm. of a hodgepodge of academics and nonprofits that are putting that stuff together now. But I, I think the survey vendors are going to have to start reporting on both. And I think that's going to be illuminating for a lot of people to say, for a lot of compros to say, well, the market's 12, but, you know, to actually be able to live independently by yourself is 17. I think mm-hmm. they're going to look at that. It, it might be a lights on moment for a lot of compros out there. Totally agree. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you now I run a, I run a survey. It's, it's free with participation. I did that purposely. So there wouldn't be any barriers. The the thing is like growing uh, enormously and you, and you're right. The surveys just can't keep up. So, so what I'm doing, you're going to laugh about this. I'm taking photos of all the posters that are in every store, every business that says what they're paying. And I'm showing those photos. So, so when somebody says, well, I can't, I can't get to $15 an hour, I can't afford it, or I can't do it. I show them the pictures of the retail establishments that are at 17 or the furniture stores that are doing a $1,500 sign on bonus. And, and when you show them what's going on real time, it, it hits them. It's like, okay, well, wait a minute. The survey data hasn't caught up, but the reality is it's not $15 an hour. And, you know, so it's, it's yeah. a pretty powerful way to get the point across. Well, even 15 is just, uh, you know, kind of a, a, an indicator of like kind of how badly our industry has failed in this regard, right? Mm-hmm. Because 15 is not a number that we can necessarily peg to anything, right. uh, but it's just to show the huge gap between being market relevant and people relevant. You know, I, I know I'm here to promote my book, but like one of the things that really uh, transformed my entire worldview on this is a book called The Good Job Strategy by Zainab Tan. Uh, she's a professor at MIT and I was fortunate enough uh, that she blurbed my book. Uh, so very, very happy to have that. I was you know, kind of just spinning when I saw that I was so happy. But like, <laughs> I think every HR leader, every operations leader, every comp leader just fundamentally has to read this book to understand the ROI on these types of investments. When you invest in people, you know, they treat your customers better. When they treat your customers better, you know, everybody wins, right? So um, I, I think I think we are due for just a fundamental shift in how this stuff works. Couldn't agree more. That's great. Another question. What, what advice do you have for employees who want a pay raise? Yeah. So I, w- I might break this up into, you know, a few different categories. I would say the first thing to do is to to lead with career. And I think this is the conversation is going to be different, uh, whether, you know, if you're in this low wage sector versus you, you know, you have more um, employment options, you're 
further up the chain in your career. Um, I think leading with career is always a good uh, first step, even if it's like a Trojan horse to say, because career conversations typically lead to leveling conversations, which lead to pay conversations, right? Or where you are in the range and that kind of thing. So if you, if you start with a career conversation, you know, if you come in with, you know, if you can identify a gap and uh, your company's leveling guide versus, uh, you know, where, what you think your job is to try and get on that same page first, I think is a really helpful indicator because as, as uh, comp people, we all know that, uh, you know, those are kind of the non-negotiables, right? Like if someone comes in and, and they're like really clearly doing director level work, but we're paying them like a manager or senior manager, like you got to get that fixed, you know? Um, so like, those are really easy cases to make up the chain. Um, I would say, you know, make sure you have a really simple story. Like if you come in, say, and want to say too little, you know, I deserve a raise, uh, you know, give me or I'm leaving. That's not going to be terribly effective in most mm-hmm. cases. The same case, if you say I deserve a raise for this 600 list of reasons, like it's going to get too muddy because like your manager very likely does not have unilateral authority to, uh, to make the, um, to write you that check, right? Like or to increase it, they're going to have to go make the case in a lot of cases, uh, like several rungs up the chain to get a yes and within that like if you're an employee you need to understand that like depersonalizing the situation is the best way to go you know because again your manager probably uh, didn't have much uh say in setting your pay rate they're definitely not setting your pay range um and they don't control the policies for the most point so you know they can be your advocate and you want them to be your advocate but if you come in and say you know something like you know you're you're treating me terribly unfairly they're they're less likely to be in your corner Mm -hmm. um uh, you know, that might be true, though. And if that's the case, you know, then, then you may need to be working for looking for something outside of your company. And then I would also say, uh, you know, go big. Uh, w- when you realize when you know your policies, you know, your company's calendar, and you've identified that gap, like, don't don't come in for 5%, right? Like your company is going to be uh, and say, well, what, what is this? They're not going to leave us for 5%. Like, mm-hmm. find that number, um, make it at least 10% and make sure you've got a valid case based on your pay ranges or your level or whatever it may be. Um, and, you know, ask for it. Like they might walk it back or they might say, hey, we understand you made a good case, but it, it, in smaller companies, it might take us two or three years to get here. Um, here's the here's the plan, right? Like um, if you're a really talented performer, you know, I, I would hope that most companies would uh, would recognize that and treat that as valid. Good. Excellent. Now, now you talk about the nuclear option. Tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Yes. I mean, the the nuclear option is is really just uh, presenting an outside job offer. You know, an outside job offer is one of those things that you may not be able to find this out ahead of time, but some companies have no negotiation policies, uh, no counteroffer, because I think there's this inherent belief that that's pretty hard to um, back into the actual source for this. But uh, that something like 80% of people who accept a counteroffer are gone within six months anyway. Uh, so a lot of uh, comp HR leaders will probably say, well, it's not worth upsetting the the harmony of everybody else by giving this one person a raise. So they might just say, we don't negotiate under any circumstances. If that's you, like uh, no matter if you're going to present the outside offer, you, you have to be ready to walk, right? Because mm-hmm. you might find yourself in that scenario. You might also find yourself in the scenario where, you know, it's either just a no um, or you've, uh, uh, and or you've like hurt your, um, uh, your relationships with your managers and your leaders because uh, for whatever reason you've hurt their feelings and you know they view it as a betrayal right so like uh, that's why I, I say you know depersonalizing it as much as you can like I would think any any good competent manager if, if you can point to a, a, like a serious gap that's caused by uh, you know your company's own policies practice or whatever and say hey you know I, I'd like to stay here I'd like to grow my career but uh, I, I I really need to get my pay adjusted for these reasons. I, I think that's pretty valid, and uh, you know, but that that uh, that outside offer is 
in a lot of cases, just kind of the last resort option, unless you're at a company like Netflix, where they expect you to do that on a regular mm-hmm. basis, and they make that very, very public. Right. Now, personally, not not based on any of your company's policies, but but personally, what do you think about extending counter offers? What do I personally think about it? it you know, I think uh, I think it has to start with um, having equitable practices in place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what I what I don't like is co- are companies that uh, you know they make decisions based on how effective an advocate their manager is, uh, because that might not be valid. You know, like if you have a, a very loud squeaky wheel manager who insists that the person they're about to lose is this unique special unicorn, that may or may not be true, you know, just like, uh, but if you say, uh, you know, it, it, I, I would say if you um, have um, policies around this, uh, then I think it can absolutely be okay. Because, you know, there are cases where, hey, you've really messed up, you know, like you're some like, you may not have um, intentionally uh, you know, lowballed this person or they're, you know, kept their pay behind or whatever. And, and uh, but, you know, you might've just missed, you know, mm-hmm. and, and if that's the case, then, you know, and if they're super talented, they're uh, needed for the, uh, for the benefit of organization, then sure, you know, increase their pay as long as it, um, you know, you follow those pre- that same set of, uh, um, uh, you know, triage effects for everybody, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, uh, you just, that's where I think you win and lose people around, you know, do they believe the process is fair or not? Well, consistency is the key. I, I really believe that. And, and on counter offers, I mean, what I've seen is, you know, sometimes you don't let people know how much you appreciate them until, you know, you might lose them. And so all of a sudden, you know, the employee finds out that they're needed, they're wanted, they're loved and the organization wants to keep them. They find out that they're a key employee, which they didn't know. And this all comes back to communication. So I think we've got to really tell our key folks how much we need them and, and to reward them. And, uh, and that's how we're going to retain some of these folks. Right. And that's, that's where really good talent planning comes in too, right? So comp can't just be its own little bubble trying to solve for people's careers. You know, recognition matters, you know, being on, um, you know, important projects, getting senior leadership visibility, all of that stuff goes into the employment experience. You know, do people feel that, uh, they, that your company is the best place for them to grow their career or not? And there's a lot that goes into that, not just pay. Exactly. Okay. We have time for one more question. In your book, you mentioned pay sincerity. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So, um, uh, pay sincerity is uh, my my thinking around. I just believe broadly that the delta between what businesses say they do and what they're actually doing, I think that delta is going to zero over time. And I think that's true in all areas of your company. So it's true in your supply chain, whether it's through, you know, blockchain technology or whatever it may be, where you can track things all the way through, you know, where they made in fair conditions and, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, certainly true in DE&I and absolutely true in, um, you know, the compensation space with the level of um, disclosures, uh, you know, increasing the transparency expectations. Uh, so I just think um, the idea of redeeming uh, sincerity as a as a value in our companies is going to be really critical. I think companies that uh, you know, uh, you know 
focus on trust, you know, build resilience uh, for low times. And if they've really over-indexed on trust and they're sincere in their commitments, even if they don't get it right all the time, which as comp pros, we know we never do, um, uh, but we can get it wrong less of the time if mm-hmm. we're good about this stuff. And, and if we built this foundation of trust and sincerity that sits under it, I think that stuff is really important. The example that I give for this is I talk a lot about the business roundtable. And uh, if for listeners who may not know, the business roundtable is this group of, you know, some of the biggest... Uh, 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 CEOs in the world, you know, they uh, kind of commit to certain things around um, you know, how businesses should operate in the future. And, you know, they got a ton of good press and around 2019 when I was writing this book around, um, you know, we, around stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism, mm-hmm. you know, just to say, you know, we are, you know, shifting the way that we think businesses should be running for the uh, the um, the sake of all stakeholders, not just our shareholders, right? And they got a lot of, and one of the things in there for, for our lens was they think, you know, they committed to, uh, and I wrote the phrase down here, compensating fairly and providing important benefits. So, you know, this group is not shying away from the word fair. So, uh, you know, I, I don't shy away from it either, you mm-hmm. know, but uh, the interesting thing is like the business roundtable has, has said this before, you know, if you go back in their history in the eighties, they, they kind of had this exact same, we're going to shift away, you know, from sta- uh, stakeholder or shareholder capitalism to stakeholder. And then in the late nineties, they went back to shareholders exclusively because, you know, stock op- probably because stock options were, were free and had no expense attached to it. And mm-hmm. just think it was flowing. Uh, but now, you know, we're back in back from where we started. Right. So uh, the, the same that we keep having that we're, we keep saying what's old is new again in comp. It's like, okay, so do we actually mean it this time or not is, is what I'm trying to get after. Mm-hmm. And I know as comp pros, if we see a phrase like compensating fairly and providing important benefits from these companies, but as the people in charge for compensating fairly and providing important benefits, what rubric are we supposed to be working off of? Like none of us, none of us are doing this. Like and we might be like doing it in our programs, but we're not working on any standards here. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity for if they want to actually, if they, if they mean those goals, we need to be thinking about, okay, what, what is, what do these definitions mean and, and how do we get after it? So, um, you know, uh, the, the definition that I use, you know, on this is the pay sincerity is a, a way of working that relentlessly pursues equitable and transparent pay provides for the essentials of a decent life and helps people seek the full reward of their contributions and potential. So it expands our role into more than just monitors of the market, but actually influencers of the market. And I think we have to really step into that space. I really love that definition. It really just humanizes the whole compensation function, I think. Excellent. Very good. Well, David, thank you very much. How can listeners get in touch with you and where can they purchase your book? So uh, my website is davidbuckmasterbooks.com. I'm keeping a whole list of podcasts that I've been on, press, that kind of thing, and links to buy the book uh, directly on that website. Feel free to also reach out, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm on all of those. And you can buy the book wherever books are sold. So uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, I think Target and Walmart online, uh, your local indie likely has it. Um, so I hope you'll check it out. And for the comp pros out there, you know, feel free to ping me. I'd love to know what you think, what you agree with, disagree with. I'd love to continue this conversation because I really do believe that our field is headed for just fundamental change and we will all be better off for it. Totally agree. Well, David, it was such a pleasure talking with you and thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on Pay Matters. Make sure to visit our website, paymattersbook.com, where you can check out our best-selling book, 
Pay Matters, The Art and Science of Employee Compensation, available for purchase on the website and now on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. David Weaver is available for compensation consulting, training programs, and speaking engagements. Thanks for listening. Gotta show me the money. Whatever.